All right, our scripture reading uh, today is going to be from Joshua chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Joshua 4, 1 through 7. This is the word of God. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the, of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. <clears throat> thanks, Tyler, and thanks, Michael. Um, you know, one of the, the sad things about uh, my kids getting older is that I feel like I'm losing a license to watch Pixar movies, you know? Like, it's weird for a 44-year-old to go watch Pixar movies by himself. But if you're not familiar with Pixar shows, it's the folks that did Toy Story, Cars, Soul, you know, Soul I loved. I talked about that several times during Ecclesiastes. Um, but anyway, they, they tend to tell really good stories, and, and they tend to, to kind of push me to get a little bit teary-eyed from time to time. Um, and there's one Pixar movie, uh, Coco, another one I liked. Uh, and there's a song that's important to the movie and, and the theme of it and all that. It's called Remember Me. And I'll try not to give too much away, uh, but there's a, a shift in the meaning in, in that song. In, in the beginning, the, the, the song is, uh, is this kind of, um, this guy that's singing is kind of full of himself. He's kind of a, kind of a narcissist. And then uh, it, it, it shifts later to be more about the love of a father for his daughter. And, and I thought it was brilliant how they were able to, to shift the meaning of the song from being about this guy who's kind of full of himself to, uh, to a father singing to his daughter that he loved. Um, and the second time I heard you know, the first time I hear it, I don't think anything of it. It's just a you know, stupid Pixar song. And then the second time I hear it, it's, it's kind of making me, me teary-eyed. And anyway, there's a difference between a narcissist will sing a song that's called Remember Me and the way that, that a father would sing it to his, to his daughter. And, and if, if I were to tell one of my children... Uh, to, to remember me, that it would have a different meaning than if I were to tell y'all as you were leaving, hey, remember me, remember me, it, it would just sound different. Like it's the same word being said, but it's just going to land a bit different. And I don't know, you know, you're, you're, I think people said this a lot to their kids. It's one of the things that my dad said to me. Um, but he used to tell me, it was about the time I, I started to get my driver's license and I was leaving, and he said, you know, Kev, if, you ever, if you're ever in a spot, if you're in a bad situation and, and you're stuck and you can't leave and you know you, you're, you where you are, you shouldn't be. Like, you can call me, and I'll come get you, and, and there'll be no questions asked. And he said it more than, more, more than just a couple times as I, as I was growing up. Just remember, if you're ever in a tough spot, like, you can call me, and even if you're doing what you shouldn't be doing, like, I'll pick you up, no questions asked. 
And in a sense, my dad was telling me like, hey, if, if you're ever in a, in a tight spot, remember me. Remember your dad. Like, I'm, I'm on your team. And, and there are a few places in Scripture that we see God tell his people, look, remember me. Remember me. And, and it's good for God to do this. And the reason it's good for God to do this is because we tend to forget God. We tend to forget God because life happens fast. We just got things going on. We got things right in front of us. But our, our God is good and kind to call us out of those things, to remember him. And we also need to be reoriented to what is real and true. And so in our text today, we see Israel's just crossed the Jordan River. God, God had the river stop flowing. He dried it up. They walked through like it was, they walked through on dry land. And so what he wants to do when, when you're done passing through I want you to take some stones and I want you to make a memorial so you'll remember what's happened. And so I want to talk about two, I want to, I want to consider two questions today. The first is, what does Israel need to remember and why? And then two, what do we need to remember and why? So first, what does Israel need to remember and why? So the Lord told Joshua, take 12 men, from the, uh, one from each tribe, and take a stone out of the Jordan and I want you guys to make a memorial. You're going to stack these 12 stones up, make a memorial. And in verse 7, we read this. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So they do this. And then later in Joshua 4, 19, we read this. That the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you pass over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, one thing to notice in that, in that little passage is that they crossed the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and that's significant. And so turn back to, to if you have your Bibles, turn back to Exodus chapter, chapter 12, we're looking at verse 1 through 3. So he says, the, 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 the author says that they crossed the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. And I think that's significant, and I think we see why it's significant in Exodus 12. Exodus 12 uh, is when the final plague, the, the death of the firstborn, is, is threatened by God to the people of Egypt. And so this is also known as the Passover, when the Lord was going to strike down all the firstborn of the lamb, but he was going to pass over those who had the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. And so you could say that this is when the Exodus out of Egypt really began. And so if you look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, we, re we read this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his, their father's house, a lamb for their household. So the exodus began on the tenth day of the first month. So you could say that the exodus also ended on the tenth day of of the first month. That's when they cross into the, the promised land. And so what is our God telling us by having these dates match up? He's telling us that when he starts something, he finishes it every time. He told them he would take, to, take them to the promised land, and he did. 
so they can trust that they will conquer the promised land. He told them to go in. They're going to go to war. They're going to take the promised land. And so they can trust him because just as surely as he told us to come out and that we land here, we have, we know what he'll do, what he's calling us to now. And the same is true for us. We get this start and finish language in the New Testament. Philippians 1.6, Paul says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if you are saved, if you are in Christ, then you can know for sure that God is working in you and that work will be brought to completion one day. He does not, uh, he always will finish what he starts. And so Israel needed to remember that God finishes what he starts because as they've gone from Egypt to the promised land, they're being called to take the promised land. And so God is calling them to go to war. It's going to be no small thing he's calling them to. And they need to remember that this was God's idea and not theirs. And God is going to accomplish all that he sets out to accomplish every time. And one way they're going to remember this is that God had them set up a memorial. Take 12 stones out of this river that you just crossed on dry land. And don't forget about this. And so when your kids, you know, they see these stones and they say, what's this for? You're not going to say, well, you know, us, the people of Israel, we're just good at getting across rivers. We, we found a way. We got a boat. We, we built a bridge. That's not the message for the children of Israel. The message for the children of Israel is that God did this. God brought us here. God meant for us to be here. It's God who's doing this. And, and we see this, these memorial type things a lot in the Old Testament. And they had things built into their lives to remember. And to remember specifically what God had done. Like the, the Passover meal. The whole reason for the Passover meal is so they'd look back to see how God brought them out of Egypt. And if you're familiar with the book of Esther, where the, the, the whole Jewish population almost got taken out, God saved them. They had a feast to remember how God saved them then. And then with this situation, they crossed the Jordan on dry ground, and God wanted them to remember. He wanted Israel to remember how he saved them. And the reason this is important, the reason it's important for them, the reason it's important for us, is because what this did for the people of Israel is it deepened their hope in God. And having hope in God is really important. And I would even go so far as to say that hoping in God is more important than obeying God. Now, that's, that might seem like an odd statement to make, because it's like, which one's better, hoping God or obeying God? You know, why are you making these two friends enemies? And I'm, I'm not wanting to do that. But, but what I do want to say is that our obedience to God is downstream from our hope in God. In other words, what fuels obedience to God is going to be hope in God. And I mentioned this last week when I, when I uh, looked at Psalm 78. The psalmist is writing about the, the next generation to come. So in this passage, hey, these stones are here for the next generation to come. And in Psalm 78, they're talking about the next generation to come. It's like, you need to tell that generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. And then he says the reason for that in Psalm 78, verse 7, he says, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Obedience to God, keeping his commandments, whatever righteousness might be, that's downstream from setting your hope in God. And so if you feel far from God, if you feel disconnected from God, it might not be that you just have some sin you're struggling with, or it might not be some issue of obedience that you're being timid about. 
it might begin instead that you've forgotten the works of God and that you have lost or are losing hope in God. So our remembering God, not forgetting the works of God, but having our hope fully set in God is the key to living a faithful life. So Israel needed to remember crossing the Jordan River. They needed to remember that, that, that this was something that God did and they should set their hope in God who brought them through the river on dry land. So that's Israel and the Jordan and them. Now, what about us? What do we need to remember and why? Israel had these 12 stones. God was like, you need to remember this day and we're going to set up some stones here because you need to remember this event. So what do Christians have? We are not people of the old covenant. We're people of the new covenant. And so we, we get a clue to so what we're supposed to remember. In Luke, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 22, and we're going to look at verse 14 to 20. Our God wants us to, to look at stuff or do stuff to remember things that are important. And there's something about these acts that's supposed to shift our hope to Him and away from things we shouldn't have our hope shifted in. And look, all of us need to go through some kind of hope detox. We're hoping in friends or success or money or whatever. We all need to go into hope de detox to set it on God. And God's given us these things to help reorient our hope. So let's look at Luke 22, verse 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. This is Jesus. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this is the institution of the Lord's Supper. The people of the new covenant, the, the church, we have a ritual that we are supposed to keep so that we don't forget what Jesus has done. And, and, and look, there's ways of approaching the Christian life and some of them can be quite off. For example, if you're trying hard to, to do it right and not sin, and, and, if, and if you think doing good enough will make you right with God so you go to heaven and not hell, then I'm telling you, you are doing it wrong. We cannot ever be good enough for God. He cannot and He will not overlook our sins. And whatever good we might do, it will never, ever, outweigh the bad that we've done and we're largely blinded to the bad we've done because we just compare ourselves to other bad people and we can usually find somebody worse another way to approach the christian life is more transactional if i play by the rules then god owes me so i, I try to be a good person and god owes me a spouse or i try to live my life right i go to church i do good and so money should should, should work out for me or, or bad things shouldn't happen that's not good either God owes you nothing. No matter how good you have been, God owes you nothing. We could also approach the Christian life 
using God as a means to an end. I once heard that God can make you happier than you can make yourself. That really struck me uh, when I was younger. I also think it's true. But you can take that and you can twist it in a way that's not good. You can take that and twist that to where you have a vision of the good life and I'm going to use God to get there. And that's not how it works with our God. And just to be clear, I think the pursuit of God and the pursuit of happiness should be the same thing. I think if you want to be happy, you should pursue God. And I think pursuing God will actually maximize your happiness in life. It'll dull the enjoyment of sin, no doubt, but in the long run, it'll maximize your happiness. But whenever we make God a means to an end, when we have a vision of the good life, and I think if I play by God's rules, then I'll get there, we're just approaching it all wrong. And what I'm convinced of, deep in my bones, like all that stuff I just mentioned is so off, but what I'm convinced of deep in my bones is that the only thing that really changes anybody, if anybody I've seen at least, is the gospel of grace. I've seen people recommit their lives to Christ. I've seen people go to camp, go to a conference, go forward. I mean, for me, I accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior every time he was offered. I mean, I didn't want to go to hell, you know? So, so anyway... But, but I don't know if I ever understood grace. And, and, and the event where the gospel of grace is made the most clear is Jesus on the cross, where he gave his body for us and his blood was poured out for us. And so whatever we do, whatever our approach is to the Christian life, however we're approaching whatever it is we think God wants us to do, it should flow downstream from the gospel of grace. And if it's not flowing downstream from the gospel of grace, you're doing it wrong. If you're burdened with guilt and anxiety about keeping the rules, you're doing it wrong. And look, I don't think there's an event in the Bible that so encapsulates who our God is as when we remember Jesus on the cross. Because on the cross, we see God's holiness, His wrath, His judgment, as Jesus, the Son of God, takes the punishment in full for our sins. And on the cross, we also see God's love, His mercy, His compassion, and His grace. And we understand that punishment was not due Him. It was due me. And all that who would believe on that and turn to Him will be saved and not only saved, but they'll be adopted into the family of God, adopted by God himself, become an adopted brother of Jesus. And all of this saving work is the work of God. In the same way that God brought Israel through the Jordan River, so God brings us home to himself, reconciled to him. And anyone who is a Christian, they're becoming a Christian, they have nothing more to brag about than the Israelites did who went through the, 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 the Jordan River. And if someone genuinely believes, genuinely believes that God has treated them infinitely better than they deserve to be treated, then they'll never be the same. They'll be marked with a sense of relief and deep joy. But our, our usual thought is that God hasn't really given us a, a fair deal, that God has not treated us well, and that we think we've missed out on more than we, we've gained, and that God's given us a bad deal. But... If you can ever come to terms that your God has treated you infinitely better than you deserve, then it'll change your life forever and you'll never be the same.
God's grace changes people. And, and if you're, you're hearing this and you're just like, Kevin, I don't, I've known about Jesus dying for a long time. It's never, I've known about grace. It's never had that deep of effect on me. Let me just, let me just say, maybe you haven't. If you're thinking, I know about grace and it hasn't changed me, I just want to say, I don't think you do know about grace. God's grace changed in, in Titus 2.11. I read this last week. Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it says that something has appeared, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives. And the thing that has appeared is the grace of God. So renouncing ungodliness and living a godly life is downstream from the grace of God. And until your heart has been touched by the grace of God, then whatever way you're approaching the Christian life, you're doing it wrong. If you're approaching the Christian life from something else, if something is pushing you towards obedience outside the grace of God, you're doing it wrong and you're not going to last. I often hear deconversion stories about people leaving the faith or leaving the church uh, and they felt like they couldn't keep up with the rules or they felt judged by, by the Christians or parents or the church or whatever. Well, look, I totally get that. Like rules and judgment, like that doesn't capture my heart. And I'm, you know, for, for some people, like when there's more expectations and all that, they, they kind of go into, they, they kind of step it up. Like I don't, like I run the, the opposite way, which has made some awkward scenarios with me as a pastor when I, when I sense that. But anyway, the, 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 the idea here is these people who are deconverting or, or turning away from the faith or the church, they're, they're almost always talking about the rules and judgment. And there's never, I haven't heard one person yet talk about a deep experience of the richness of God's grace and, and, and still turn away. And the reason is those people will never leave. When, when God's grace has touched your heart, you're there to stay forever. And God will keep you to the end because God finishes what he starts. But for a heart to be affected by God's grace... And here's where I think most people get it. Here's where I think most people miss it. For a heart to be affected by God's grace, it must first tremble at God's judgment. And I'll say this too. If you have never been afraid of God, then you don't know God's grace. If all you've ever heard about is God's love and you've never trembled before God's judgment, I don't know how you would know God's grace. What even category do you have for it? God's grace is a given. If you've not been afraid of God, then you can't know God's grace. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sometimes I try to explain it this way. So everybody go back in time to uh, being 17 years old, okay? You're in high school, uh, you have your, your license, and, uh, and, and, and your, your parents, your dad in particular, He's on your case. He's like, hey, driving too fast. Slow it down. Anyway, one day you get a speeding ticket. Oh, man, I've been hearing about this for a while. I'm going to get home and I'm, gonna, I'm really going to hear it from my dad. So you get home, tell your dad you got a ticket. And he's like, you don't listen. I've told you to, you're driving too fast. And he says, hey, look, you're going to pay this ticket 
And actually, I'm, gonna take your, I'm taking the keys. You're not driving for, for another month. And he is visibly angry in his tone, demeanor, and everything. So anyway, you can't drive for a month. Like, he wasn't playing around. He meant it. You're driving too fast, and you're not driving for a month, and you're, you're angry. And your dad's more angry, right? About a week later, a bunch of friends are getting together, and it's about midnight. The old man's been asleep for a couple hours, and, uh, and he has your keys, but he leaves his out in the kitchen. He's been asleep for two hours. That old dude doesn't wake up in the night. I think I can make it there and back. If I leave at midnight, be back by two or three, he'll never know the difference. So you get the keys, you go to the party. No one hears you, you're good. And then about 3 a.m., you head back home. And one other thing your dad's told you before is never use your phone when you're driving. When you're picking out music or doing something on your phone, if you're off the road, hit a tree. And you don't just hit it a little bit. Like it's, it's, you, you wrap the, 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 your dad's car around the tree. It's like the engine's destroyed. It's over. And you realize, I have to call my dad, who thinks I'm in bed, to tell them I took his car and I wrecked it and it's totaled. So you call your dad, he wakes up, he answers the phone, and, and you tell him what you say, hey, I'm okay, but here's what happened. I wrecked your car, took, wrapped it around a tree, and he responds with one sentence before he hangs up. He says, I'm on my way. You're like, I'm not quite sure. What, what, is, that a, is he worried about me? I can't tell. Sounded kind of mad. Anyway, so you're just sitting there waiting. Eventually, you see your dad pulls up, uh, and as he approaches the car, you're wishing, I wish I died. <laughs> I wish I died in that accident. This is going to go really, really bad. And so, uh, and, it's, and it's one of those situations where usually, you know, maybe you're arguing with your, your mom or dad, and there's always like some little sliver of like, well, it wasn't fair. Well, they did this. And there's like, there's like no getting out of this. Like this was like, you're bad from start to finish. There's no redeeming this. There's no, there's no one to blame. There's no dignified approach to explain. It is just bad all the way around. It is 100% on you. And your dad walks up to you. And he says, you know what? I've been waiting for something like this to happen to you. Because you need to know that my love and commitment to you has nothing to do with how good or bad you are. Not a thing to do with how good or bad you might be. Don't worry about that car. I'm going to pay for the damages. Matter of fact, that speeding ticket you got last week, let me pay for it. I'm going to pay for that for you too. Also, you're free to drive again. Now, if that happened to you, would your heart change towards your dad? Might it soften quite a bit? And wouldn't that maybe stir some deep affection for your father who's being so kind and gracious? Now, let me, let me push this out a little further. Imagine you get home. So you, your, your dad drives you home and you pull into the driveway. And as you get out of the car, he says to you, hey, we left the uh, trash cans out by the road. Would you get them? Do you think you'd say, I got them last time. It's my brother's turn. Or do you think you'd be like, oh, very happy to get them, sir. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You'd, 
run out there, you know, come and wash them out or something. You'd be so eager to do this because your father is so kind and gracious. And I would go so far as to say it would make you happy to do that. You would do it with joy in your heart because your father is so kind and gracious. So look, if you are a Christian, you are that kid. That's you. Now, I would imagine a story like that seems a little silly because most of us are are, are thinking, yeah, my parents aren't like that. I don't think I'm like that. I mean, I don't think think I'd be that cool with my kids. And here's the thing. I don't think your parents are like that. I don't think most parents are like that. I don't know if any parents are like that. But you know what? Hear me say this. Our God is like that, y'all. That's what he's like. He is that gracious to those who turn to him. His ways are not our ways. He is more gracious and compassionate than we have ever imagined. Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. He's way more forgiving than we are. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In the movie Coco, this father loves his daughter. He loves his little girl. And he writes her a song. And the reason he writes the song is because when he's away, he wants her to remember him. I love you. I love you so much. And here's a song. I want you to remember that your father loves you deeply. Jesus said to his disciples and to us, hey, remember me. Remember that I have redeemed you, not by you doing well. You don't do well. I redeemed you by giving my body and my blood for you. So, so take, take the bread, take the wine, remember, remember me, remember your God who loves you. Remember my body given for you, remember the blood poured out for you. Never forget about the grace of God. You need it to accomplish all that God is calling you to do. So may God help us to never forget the great, extravagant, ridiculous grace that he has shown us. And may that motivate us to a genuine, grateful, heartfelt life of repentance and obedience. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us. We don't deserve the riches of your grace and mercy that you have lavished upon us. Help us to remember that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God without being in Christ, and that in Christ we can know your grace and mercy and kindness be adopted into your family. And so would you help us to never remember that you, or to never forget that you have been gracious uh, to us as sinners who are undeserving, 
And may that stir our affections for Jesus and strengthen us to do all that you're calling us to do. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.